welcome. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, here we are again this Sunday as every Sunday before. As Christians have been gathering since the resurrection of Jesus on this day of the week to uh, worship, to hear from you. And so we pray now as we hear this word read that you would indeed speak to us. This word would be as it says it is the very word of God that this word would be as it says it is alive and able to pierce deeply within us to convict of sin, yes, also, but to bring hope to us that we may live. So I pray that you would enable us now to listen well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn to this New Testament letter uh, called Titus. And I want to read again, as I read last Sunday, the first four verses. You'll see in, I suppose, I don't know if it's up there, but in your bulletins, after I read, I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God, just like we did last week. You were so good at that, that I couldn't help but want to do that again. All right? So this, from Titus, in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, In Christ Jesus, our Lord, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. We began this last Sunday and and, um, want, obviously, to continue as we do, uh, working our way through these uh, books, these long passages of Scripture. I want to take up this morning, if God will help me, this little expression in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life. Um, uh, Obviously, that's an important expression for us, eternal life. Um, And it's one that we use a lot. And it's helpful because when we say it, we have a sense of what it means. The difficulty is that so often when we say it, we may confuse those who don't believe. They wonder, what is this eternal life that these people keep talking about? And sometimes, you know, when we use expressions like this, and we use them so often, then became shorthand for us uh, in our conversations with each other. We, we begin to miss what these expressions really mean. Obviously, it's an important expression. Uh, if you've been around the church, if you thumb through the Bible, you find this expression often. It's important for Paul here as he, as he uses it. He's introducing himself to Titus. We mentioned last Sunday how odd that was since he and Titus were such good friends and had worked and ministered together, but that Paul had a point for this longish introduction to this short letter. Uh, he wanted those who would hear this letter read to know who he was and also, I suspect, to give Titus assurance that these words which he, were writing, which he was writing were true uh, 
And he begins by, Paul does, identifying himself by referring to himself as a servant of God. Uh, he, he knows that his life is not his own. He's been bought with a price. And he comes to serve God. He, he, he comes according to the will of God, not his own will, but the will of God. And that is why he ministers. And he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's where his authority uh, comes uh, as an apostle, one sent out by Jesus, just like the other apostles, in a very unique way, uh, saw, experienced uh, the risen Christ, that for Paul later than the others. The others had seen Jesus right after the crucifixion uh, that Sunday and then in the weeks following before Jesus' ascension. Uh, Paul didn't experience this until he was on that road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And Jesus appeared to him. So he saw him and was commissioned at that point to be an apostle. One sent out by Jesus with the authority of Jesus. And you see the purpose for which he was sent. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. So he came to bring this word of the gospel. So that those whom God had chosen to be his would hear this as sheep hear the shepherd's voice and would respond to it and bring them to faith and also increase uh, their faith by the knowledge of the truth. So they would increase in knowledge of knowing this truth about God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this truth always accords with or leads to godliness. So just get this sense that Paul saying, here I am, a servant of God. I've sent out by Jesus and I'm sent out by Jesus for the purpose of, of, of preaching the gospel in such a way that his elect will hear this word and be drawn to it, believe their faith will um, grow and they will have a knowledge of the truth. And this truth always leads to or accords with, is consistent with, brings about godliness. That's going to be crucial as Paul writes to them and as even as he writes to us, because there's a difficulty in Crete and perhaps even at times among us or Christians in our day, not realizing that the truth that we have isn't just given to us who will know more about God, but that it will lead to something which it will lead to godliness, our living as those who belong to God. For instance, in verse 16 of chapter 1, Paul writes of the church, the Christians in Crete, they profess, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So you wonder, who are these people that are populating these churches in Crete? So Paul wants them to know from the outset that this knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. So they need right truth. They need right understanding about who God is, the gospel is. And also, it's to lead in a particular way for their lives. And then Paul adds this expression in the hope of eternal life. So why does he mention that? Why at this point does he mention in the hope, in hope of eternal life? This is, this is, and what's he, why does he mention, what's he mean by it? How is it to help this added information that his ministry is such as a servant of God and apostle of Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope also of eternal life. Uh, why? Why does he mention this here? Perhaps because it completes the thought in the scripture. There is this relationship between hope and and faith. You get the sense that that faith, you see, is is believing 
something. It's believing that which is true here, believing the promises of God. Faith in the promises of God expressed in our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, that's faith in Jesus. But hope, with hope you get this sense that there's an anticipation of that which is to come. There's a hope, you get a sense of excitement. When I was a little kid, my Sunday school teachers taught me that hope is faith on tiptoes. It's, 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 it's faith, you believe something, but, but hope means that, that you really anticipate, you're looking, you're looking out for it. And faith and hope in the scripture are related. You might remember in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 13, the apostle uh, writes, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So you see these together, faith, hope, and love. In fact, the author of Hebrews, even as he's describing and defining what faith is, he, he, he tells us that faith has a component of hope in it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not Seen. So there is a relationship between faith and hope. So it's not unusual for Paul to talk about faith and then to bring in this sense of hope, this hope of eternal uh, life. And Paul goes to great lengths to convince them, to convince us that this hope is a certain hope. Oftentimes when we use the word hope, we have a sort of a percentage or a probability attached to it. A hope is, is that expectation, that anticipation that good is going to come. Uh, and, and, and so, um, if you're a student and you take an exam, your expectation is you may not do so well, but your hope is that you will, right? You never hope to do poorly, I suppose. You hope to do well. But you might say, uh, there's only a 50-50 chance that I'm going to do well. That my hope is not really certain. For Cubs fans, right? you hope that something that hasn't happened in over a century is going to happen. You can actually win the World Series. Not everybody's hoping for that. Uh, but if you're a real Cubs fan, you may not really expect it. Right? And there's a certain percentage of probability attached that this is actually going to happen. But Paul is saying to us, this is certain. When he uses the word hope, he doesn't mean that it's 80% sure, 90% sure, 60% sure. He means it's 100% sure. And he goes to great lengths to, to let us know that. He says, the hope in, in, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies... So God is trustworthy, unlike the people in Crete, for instance. In verse 12, uh, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. And so Paul has to make sure God isn't like you. And he could even say to us, God isn't like us. As Americans, we lie. We have lying that's systemic in our lives, isn't it? Through all kinds of things, advertising, politics. I mean, we expect fabrications of the truth all over the place just sort of built in we take certain things with as we say a grain of salt because we know uh it's really that, that whitening isn't really going to make my teeth that white maybe whiter but not that white right 
I, I know that that car isn't going to make me that happy for that long. Maybe a little happier, but we get it. And I won't even talk about politics. But Paul's saying, no, God never lies. And he's made a promise. And that's the promise of eternal life. But he goes on to even stretch that even more. He says, God who never lies, promised before the ages began. So in other words, the ages, the, the, the world as once created, hasn't changed any of this. This promise didn't occur after the ages began. It isn't like this was an afterthought. It isn't like in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. God said, now what do we do? I hadn't thought about this. Uh, I guess we're going to have to have some sort of plan where the life that they've just forfeited will be worked back into the system and human beings can have it. It wasn't that. It wasn't that this was a plan that he, he just sort of arrived at. This, this, had, this plan, this promise, was made before the ages began. Happened in eternity. In theology proper, we call this the covenant of redemption. Uh, so if you're ever playing Bible trivia, theology trivia, that will be the answer to this one. Uh, the, the covenant of redemption. It is the, the agreement made in God, that is, between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to give eternal life. And this promise is that the Father would decree it and elect those who would be recipients of eternal life. And the Son would come and achieve that for those the Father had chosen and given to him, and that the Holy Spirit would come and apply to those for whom the Son had achieved it and the Father had chosen. And this promise is in eternity. And we we, we find this throughout Paul's writing and understanding, for instance, in Romans and chapter 16. We find this expression. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And then in 1 Corinthians In chapter 2, in verse 6, Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor he heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And, and, and what he's speaking of, this, this uh, wisdom which God decreed before the ages, was the eternal life that would come because of and through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
than Ephesians in chapter 1. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So we realize something is really happening before the ages, before the foundation of the world. This isn't something new for God, that he promised this, he decreed it, as we just read, and now he's chosen before the foundation of the world. And then in Colossians and chapter 1, In verse 24, Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Uh, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles the riches of his glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then just to complete this in 2 Timothy in chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, Paul makes a statement very similar to that which he makes to Titus. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So Paul's saying, here's the reason you can trust this promise. It's because God never lies. And because God determined this, decreed it before. The ages began. That's how long it's been with us. And now Paul says, uh, you can even know this because at the proper time, God manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our savior. And so now I'm bringing this word to you about what has taken place. So God doesn't lie. He made this promise before the ages began. And now we see that it's come to fruition and I'm announcing it to you. And so you can believe it. You can trust it because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's his point. And we see this uh, covenant of redemption, if you will, in John's gospel in chapter 17, as Jesus prays to his father. This is father, verse, middle verse one. The hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like that, I just get goosebumps. uh, Because this has all been thought out, planned out in eternity by God, and now we see it come to fruition and to realize that we're a part of that work of God. And so, so he says, you can really hope for certain in this 
eternal life because God never lies and he promised it before the ages began. And now here I am announcing it to you. And, and Paul realizes, and, and God obviously does this, he, as he brings this word of eternal life to us. He says, this is something you can hope in. This is something that's certain. This is your hope. We know that as human beings, we need hope. You know that old expression, where there's life, there's hope. Better, where there's hope, there's life. You see, if we lose hope, we become discouraged. If we think all is hopeless, we give up. And so Paul is saying, I've come for the sake of the faith, for your faith, that you can increase in the knowledge of the truth, and that will lead to godliness. And I've also come that you may have this hope of eternal life, so you'll continue to persevere in the midst of this. Uh, Paul knew God as the God of hope in, in uh, Romans uh, 15. Paul writes a benediction, really, that, uh, that, that, that God is the God of, of hope, verse um, Verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement, the God of hope, grant you to live in such harmony. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. God is a God of hope. He writes of Jesus Christ as our hope as he writes to Timothy in his first epistle to Timothy. In the, in, in the book of Colossians, in that letter, he speaks of Christ as Christ in us as our hope, as the hope of glory. We need this hope in order to continue. And he says, there is hope, this eternal life. Now, hope is so important that, that frankly, it isn't just a Christian thing. Everybody gets that we need hope in order to, 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 to persevere. In fact, um, for us in Lawrence, we some of you may know of a now deceased, though prominent, uh, distinguished professor of clinical psychology, at KU, named uh, Rick Snyder, became quite well known in the uh, late 90s, and and so for his work on hope and even his hope on hope and, and forgiveness. And his his point was this: is this that to really have hope, uh, we must uh, hope has three components. We must have a goal. We must have pathways to reach that goal, and there must be agency. That is, we must have the capacity. Uh, to, to, to execute those pathways so that we can reach our goals. In commenting on Dr. Snyder's work, one person put it like this. He said, in other words, he defined hope as the perceived capacity to derive pathways to desired goals and to motivate oneself via agency thinking uh, to use those pathways. Snyder argues that individuals who are able to realize these three components and develop a belief in their ability uh, are hopeful people who can establish clear goals, imagine multiple workable pathways toward these goals, and persevere even when obstacles get in the way. And so you can, you can see how useful this idea is. It's useful for students. When a student comes to uh, one's, his or her advisor as to, to help or to a professor help in a class, what do you do? Well, what's your goal? How can we get there? And, and what fire can I put under you to, to make sure you'll get there, to motivate you uh, to do that? Uh, 
I just started physical therapy a couple of weeks ago because of this sort of pain I've had in my side has caused me not to use my left side for about six months. So I figured, well, you know, I need to strengthen that again and so forth. This pain's still there, but what the heck? And so uh, to strengthen it, so I met with this physical therapist, a great guy, and he asked me what my goals were. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm here to get, you know, strength in this side. And so he gave me a few goals, none of which seemed important to me. But anyway, uh, and then he said, oh, here's how we're going to get there. And his job, it seems, is to, to inspire me. And he knows that if I'm not inspired to work through the pathway that he's set up, that I won't reach the goal and I'll, I'll fail at that and it'll make him look bad. And so, uh, but it may get to the point where I realize that goal is unreachable and that pathway hurts and, and I may stop, right? No, I won't stop. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should look over here when I said that. And I, I may stop, Right? But it happens, you see. And then sometimes that's true, isn't it? We, we know with those who are facing disease and illness, we, we know that hope is, is that element that, that keeps them persevering, even in the midst of, of these obstacles of, of illness or, or difficulties. There must be this hope. But once we realize that these pathways aren't going to work, and not going to reach my goal, then I become hopeless and we, we see the devastation of, of all of that. Now, what makes this hope certain is that the goal is God's goal for us. The pathway is his pathway and he executes it. And so it's, it's, it's all determined, all, all dependent upon him at work through Jesus. The goal is eternal life. The pathway is through Jesus. And Jesus executes the pathway by way of his death and his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit comes and works it in us. And so, and to that extent, you see, we can be certain of it because it's all of God. And that's our hope. And that's our assurance. Our assurance is that this is from God. We receive it by faith, which means we turn away from simply our own way and, 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 and receive it. That's our hope that God has done this for us. So what is it? What is this eternal life? That is our hope. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, 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 I go through exercises. Uh, this is what I do when I'm alone. I, I think, okay, what if I were on an airplane and, and somebody said, what's eternal life? What would I say? Just, you know, I don't have my Bible with me. You know, it's in the overhead. And uh, all I wanted to do was sleep. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and now, boom, here I have this question. And, uh, and, and what do I say? Would I know what to say? What is eternal uh, what is eternal life? Uh, obviously, it's, it's an important thing. In, in scripture, it was a, it was a focus uh, of Jesus. Uh, you know, the, the, the verse that, that, that we all know, I suspect, that we memorized as kids. And if not, it's been it's enough football games that, that um, we would see it, at least the text, John three sixteen, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, that's the, the end result of this love of God for the world and for his giving his son that those who would believe wouldn't perish, but rather would have eternal life. And then you remember, just as we're thumbing through uh, the Gospel of John, that Jesus meets this, this woman uh, at a well in Samaria. And uh, she's there in the middle of the afternoon, and, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And uh, she's confused by that because he's Jewish, she's a Samaritan, they're not supposed to get along. And so she says to him, how is it that you would you ask me for a drink, a uh, woman of Samaria? Uh, and Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God, do it as the saying, do you give me a drink? You'd ask him and he would have given you living water. And she's confused by that. What do you mean? And so he said, everyone who drinks of this water, that is the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of well, uh, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, what I give you is eternal life. That's what, that's, that's what I mean by this, all of, all of this. And so Jesus, for Jesus, this whole idea of eternal life is important. In chapter 5 of John's gospel, Jesus is speaking. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So you get this sense that, that there's this contrast between, between judgment and eternal life, between death and life. And Jesus said, you'll have eternal life by believing in me. Later on in that same chapter, John records for us, as Jesus is talking to, to Pharisees, religious leaders of the day who were rejecting him. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. But you refuse to come to me that you may have life or really have this eternal life. So we, we see it there uh, as well. Then in chapter 6 in verse 27, and Jesus is giving this great discourse on the fact that he's the bread of life. He just fed 5,000 people. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. So Jesus changes the metaphor from water to bread. He says, this water I give you will spring up to eternal life. This bread I give you will feed you in such a way that you will have life and you will have life uh, eternal. Uh, chapter 10 uh, in the Gospel of John, verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I'm the one who gives you eternal life. And that eternal life is secure. You can't be snatched away from it. So again, this eternal life is significant for Jesus. It's, it's significant for others who are following Jesus around. Uh, and, and, and so we, we get the sense 
But even though Jesus was talking about eternal life a great deal, and even though, even though uh, you would imagine people asking him about eternal life because of that, that this idea, this notion of eternal life, life eternal, is, is, is built within human, human beings. In fact, uh, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And no matter how much we suppress it, there just seems this thing, that question, what happens, at least what happens when we die? Seems to be simply true historically of human beings. And so uh, various ones would come to Jesus, you might remember, and ask him about eternal life. For instance, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so you get the sense for this lawyer, eternal life was something important. It was important enough that he was willing to do something for it. And he had this sense, I need to do something for eternal life. The sense that he didn't have it, but he needed to do something. And Jesus responds here, verse 26. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your, uh, with all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So when I read that, I realize, wait a minute. I was thinking that the answer to what is eternal life is you will live forever. But Jesus doesn't hint at that at all. He says the right answer to eternal life is to love God and your neighbor. And so eternal life isn't simply a duration. It's it's certainly that. But it's not just a quantity of years. It's a quality of living. And it's a quality of living that's reflected in loving God And loving others. It's a quality of living that says that that all of life is love. It's a quality of living that says everything will reflect who God is because he's love. And so it's that sense. Eternal life really living is really loving God. We're always designed to love and to love our neighbor. That's the sense of eternal life. Same thing happened when that rich young man came to Jesus. You remember, he had the same question of Jesus. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, when you call me good, no one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. So, so how do you live in not only this duration, but how do you live this quality of life he says you know the commandments don't commit adultery don't murder don't steal don't bear false witness unto your father and mother and the rich man said uh yeah i've done all these things for my youth but but jesus knew that wasn't quite right so he challenges him how much do you love really do you love your riches or do you love god do you love your riches or do you love your neighbor so if you just get rid of your riches and go love you'll have eternal life he goes rats in the same way, the, the lawyer who asked Jesus the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember what followed that? Jesus told him this, this story because the, the, the lawyer said, if, if I'm supposed to love God and my neighbor, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, I'll tell you a story. And this man on the Jericho Road was all beaten up. There was a priest and a Levite came by, 
ignored him. Then there was this Samaritan, and that's where Jesus caught him. Because <laughs> this lawyer was Jewish. And as a Jewish man, he hated Samaritans. And so right then, when Jesus mentioned, it was a Samaritan that came and helped the guy. He's, he, he, he'd almost begin to feel the hatred. I guess I don't love my neighbor. Because I already hate this fictitious Samaritan. I guess I don't have eternal life. So then really, how can we have eternal life? What is it? Notice how Jesus defined eternal life. John chapter 3. I'm sorry, John chapter 17, verse 3. John chapter 17, verse 3. I'll start in the middle of verse 1 like I did earlier when I read this. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. This is what Jesus gives us. This is eternal life. That they, that is all those to whom he will give eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is being united to God. To know him. It's it's to be in fellowship with God. And thus we would say it's to be reconciled to God. Now what keeps us from really knowing God? It isn't just information. I mean we have plenty of information about God. The heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, so so we have plenty of information. Romans 1 says that, that, that God... Has, has caused us to be without excuse because in his creation we can see his, his power and his wisdom. So, so we have all kinds of information about God. But what keeps us from really holding to that, to, 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 to knowing God in the midst of that? It's really our sin. Rather than worshiping the God who made it, we worship what he's made, according to Romans 1. And so we miss it. Jesus says in, in John Chapter 5, that you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You see, that's why they miss it. It's their sin. They don't love God. It says, I've come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Jesus is standing there. I'm the glory of God and you won't receive me. You'll receive another's glory, but you won't receive me. You see, it's our sin. And so the way that knowing God through Jesus brings to us eternal life is that knowing the Father through the Son reconciles us to the Father. It draws, unites us to him. It draws us into fellowship with him. So Jesus has come to reveal the Father. And he reveals him by way of his cross. He reveals the Father's holiness. By saying, look at the cross. God is holy. And therefore, he cannot abide sin. But God is love. And so rather than pour out his wrath against us, he pours it out against his son. 
so that we who believe in him might have life. And so just in the cross, we find a revelation of God that we might know him, but only by believing, only through Jesus. And and then you see, once we enter into that, we're united with God, you're reconciled to him through Jesus, we know him. We have fellowship with the Father. That's what I read uh, as we began our service we're in the middle of our service this morning, uh, uh, this passage from First John, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands uh, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. To know God. To be in him. His spirit in us. We united to him. And his spirit in us, you see, producing this godliness. You see, eternal life, from a quality standpoint, is living wherein God is and living where all things reflect him. And we know that day is to come, that a day is to come when we'll live in the very presence of God and everything will reflect him. Everything will be right. But even now we know him and he's at work in us. That's why Paul writes to Titus and he says this knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. Why? So that you'll, you'll, you'll have hope in eternal life. You'll see the very life of God at work in you even now. So, so Paul writes to Timothy in Timothy in chapter 6 verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 11. Paul writes, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's saying, listen, you need to take hold of this eternal life right now. How do you do that? We do it by fleeing sin. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. That's how you take hold of this eternal life. This life of knowing God. Being united to him and he in you. Then verse 17 of this same chapter, Paul writes, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. How do we take hold of now that which is truly life? He says to the rich, be generous. That's really life. Life isn't holding all for yourself. Life is actually loving. (laughs) And if you really get that, and if you really are generous, you'll love and when you love, you'll be really experiencing, really taking hold of this life, this eternal life. So when does this eternal life come to us? Well, does it come to us now or does it come to us later? And the answer to that question is yes. Okay? 
We have it now. We've passed from life to death, Jesus says. If you believe you have eternal life, as you know God through Jesus. Now, do you know him perfectly? No, 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 no. Do you know him as well as you're going to know him? No, 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 no. Do you, do you have his presence in the same way that you will one day? No, 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 no. But you do know him. And you do have his presence with you by his spirit at work in your life, working this godliness in you so that you can know real life. The life that is to love God perfectly, no. To love each other perfectly, no. But to love him and to love each other. That is eternal life. And then a day will come when you will realize that all in its perfection. John writes later in his first epistle, in First John in chapter 3, uh, Verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is the hope of eternal life. The eternal life to come. But then John goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in, hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's eternal life now. We have this great hope of what is to come. And why do we hope for that? Why do we hope that a day is going to come when we'll be in the presence of the Lord? It isn't just to escape this life. I've got to confess to you that there are many days when I just want to leave here. I almost don't care where I go. I sort of do. But, but I just, you know... And, and I don't know why, but as the elections get closer, I have a greater, greater sense. Pardon the politics. But, um, but, but you know, I just, just this sense of escapism. Could, could we just go? Could this just be over? You know, kind of thing. And that isn't it. It's not that. It's not that escapism. It's to be with the Lord because I desire for all things to be right as he is right I desire for him to make all things right and everything to reflect him. That's my heart's desire. That's eternal life. To live in the midst of that, where everything is right. Everything glorifies God. And so John says in 1 John chapter 3, if that's your hope, if that's really your hope, then then hold on to that because that day will come. But now bring that very eternal life where you are and purify yourself as he is pure right now live in godliness so we live this eternal life now imperfectly we live it by loving God and loving one another and that can bring pain and that can be difficult And it exposes our sin, which is sad. And we live in a world where it isn't like the world to come. So it isn't right. And so we see injustice and we may even be part of that. And we experience pain and misery and physical death and all of that and the grief that comes. But he said, trust me, love me. A day is going to come. That is your hope always. 
So we see we need to maintain this hope of what is to come. And one of the ways that we do that is to meditate, to consider, frankly, the sin that's in the world. And to see it for what it is. And to grieve over it and to say that a day will come when that won't be. That is my hope. And to see our own sin and grieve over it and confess it. And say a day will come when that will not be. And then to meditate upon that which is to come. Those who have gone before us, especially centuries ago, spent much time meditating upon the world that is to come. To reading those marvelous passages in Revelation 21 and 22 that speak to us about about the glory that is to come. Meditate upon those. And put all that in your prayers. But you can live, we can live, I can live with the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would have this deep and abiding hope in eternal life. It's easy to get caught up in the world in which we live, God. It's easy to, to see the, the, the pleasures of this life and think, oh, this is good enough. And be content with that and, and lose that great hope. But Father, that, that simply fool's gold. That will go away and we know that. And so enable us to have our eyes on the prize. Enable us to have our eyes on that which is to come. And to know that we can experience that in some measure even now. So enable us to grab hold of the eternal life that we have. Always knowing we have it in measure. And a day will come and we'll see it in its fullness. And that that would inspire us, motivate us, encourage, encourage us, fill us with hope. That no matter what we see, we know what is to come. Be with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction.